How are you guys doing? Good, yeah, awesome. My name is Josh, and uh, I am one of the pastors at Four Oaks. And if you don't know me, uh, it might be because most of my time <clears throat> on Sunday mornings is spent at our other campus uh, in Killarne. We're one church, two locations in Tallahassee, one in northeast Tallahassee, and then one obviously here in Midtown where you are currently. Uh, so the church is here, hopefully you know that, but the church is also uh, up in the north part of town in Killarne. And so you don't just have two pastors, although the two pastors you have that are with you week in and week out, Lance and Scott, are just phenomenal. I don't know very many men like them, uh, and just respect and love them, grateful for what God's doing in and through them here in this congregation. But you've really got six. Uh, you have uh, the two of them plus the four of us that are typically over uh, at Killarne, and so you may not have known that. There's an extra blessing you didn't know you had this morning. Isn't that great? Uh, I appreciate the fact that we brought out the big boy podium for me today. <laughs> big preacher, big podium. That's the way it goes. So uh, this, I feel like there's a lot to live up to just with this, and so we better get to it. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in Acts 15, verse 36. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, we had uh, something that happened at my house, and um, I was trying to think of the best way to describe it. And the best thing I could come up with was uh, a discipline apocalypse uh, <laughs> happened at our house. Uh, and the flashpoint of this apocalypse, the thing that just ignited it, uh, was a word that I spoke to my children and the way that they responded to me saying this word to them. And the thing about this word is it's, it's a very common word. It's a word we use a lot. It's a word we're very familiar with. Uh, but it's a word that we hate. And it's a word that uh, when we hear it, our reaction to it, says a lot about our hearts, right? And that word, of course, I'm talking about the word no, okay? And so if you have kids, or if you've, like, ever spent time with kids, or, like, you've ever seen a kid, like, you, under- you understand what I'm talking about. Not you guys, Mason and Micah, not y'all. I'm talking about other kids. Uh, I don't even have to tell you the rest of the story. You know exactly what happened. Kids hate hearing the word no, don't they? But let's not be too hard on them, because we hate it just as much, don't we? But no is a big part of our lives. It's something we hear a lot. Authorities say no. Government says no. Parents say no. And often, at times, God says no. In the text we're going to consider this morning, God seems to be saying no all over the place. He's saying no to partnerships. He's saying no to freedoms and liberties and choices. He's saying no to plans. He's even saying no to ministry fruitfulness in some ways. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do when, when God says no? You know, our culture says when God says no, it can only mean one of three things, right? God is either non-existent, impotent, or he's capricious and unengaged, right? Uh, our Katie and I's most recent uh, binge watch on Netflix is a show called Broadchurch. Has anybody seen Broadchurch? It's so depressing, man. It's the saddest show on television. Uh, and great recommendation from, from my buddy, Pastor Lance, to check out Broad Church. Maybe he thought I was having too good of a day. It was in too good of a mood. And the, the, the story of the first season of Broad Church, I'm sorry, it's British, they call it series. And uh, the story is, there's this little boy and he's missing and his parents can't find him, come to find out. Sorry, spoiler alert. The boy has been, has been murdered. And this, there's this really poignant scene that illustrates this, this point. This dad has been hoping and, and, and really desiring. He's not a man of faith, but he's been hoping that his son is okay. And he gets word that his son has been killed. And he, he attacks the local sort of parish priest 
in this little community and he grabs him by the, by the lapels of his jacket and he says, your, your God left my son for dead. And God says no to our plans, our, our dreams, our requests. It can be so painful. We need to recognize that the way that we respond when God says no to us can also say a whole lot about what we believe about him. And we know what Christians say in those no moments, right? We, we love to kind of go to the well of the, those things that we say, right? God has a plan. You know, God's, God's working all things, right? God works all things for good. This is something that Pastor Paul calls, he calls it um, uh, sound of music theology, right? When God closes a door, he what? He opens a window. That's right. Amen and amen. And as true as, as, true as those statements might be, I want to push a little bit deeper this morning. I want to wade into some deeper waters because I think there are some deeper waters for us that we can wade into and put our feet on something solid in the midst of our confusion and disappointment when God says no to us. And I also think, I think there's not maybe a more relevant question that we could ask today for some of us because some of us, if we're honest, came in here today asking that question. God, what in the world are you doing? How did I end up here? I wanted these things and they, they seemed so good. They seem so in line with your word and your desires. Why are you saying no to me? Don't you love me? Don't you care? And I think Acts 15.36 through 16.15, if we're wise, if the Spirit will reveal it to us, can help, help us to answer some of those questions. So if you're able and willing, I want to invite you out of reverence for Jesus Christ to stand with me. We'll begin reading in Acts 15, verse 36, and we'll read through... Acts 16, verse 15. Let's give our attention to the Word of God. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the Word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities, and they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, 
and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, we were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of God. And it's eternally true. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls. But you know what? The word of the Lord is not like that. The word of the Lord endures forever. And if we're going to understand it, if he's going to write its eternal truth on our hearts, we're going to need the Spirit's help. So let's ask him for it. Would you go before the Lord with me in prayer? Jesus, we come needy to your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we come earnestly desiring your illumination. We want to be wise. We want to understand your will for us. We want to understand your nature and character in a way that can strengthen us and help us to honor you and obey you and glorify you. Jesus, we need your gospel this morning. And I just confess personally my certainty that there's nobody in this room that needs the gospel more than I do. That's not preacher talk. That's not, that's not nice words. That's the truth. You know my heart, Lord. I need you to subdue my sin. I need you to open up my heart to the beauty of these truths as we consider them together. So do that work in me. Do that work in us. We love you. We commit this time to you for your glory and for our joy. Do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please take your seats. At least three times in our passage, God, it seems, is saying no. He's saying no to relationship. He's saying no to freedoms, choices, liberties. And he's saying no to plans. The question we want to ask in each of these three areas, what's God doing? And how do we respond when God says no? Let's consider it together first. When God says no to relationship. So Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. The Jerusalem conference is finished. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out to go to Antioch to deliver uh, the word of the Lord there. They've been ministering and and preaching and and serving there some days. And after a while, we don't know exactly how long, but Paul gets that missionary itch going. And he turns to Barnabas and he says, it's time to go. It's time to to ride out. It's time to mount up and and go. We want to push, push out. We don't just want to stay where we are. And Paul's desire is to take Barnabas with him and to go to all the churches that they planted in their first missionary journey and see how they're doing. Paul's got the heart of a pastor. He doesn't want to just do drive-by evangelism, right? He wants, to, he wants to, to see how these brothers and sisters whom he loves, see if they're continuing in the faith, to see if they're holding fast to the word of God. So he tells this to Barnabas, and Barnabas says, great, awesome. Let me get my stuff. I'm going to grab John Mark, and we're going to go. And, and it doesn't say this in the text, but I like to think of Paul like sipping his coffee, as Barnabas said this, and then like doing a spit take as he says, John Mark. You know, John Mark? Are you serious right now? No way we're taking John Mark. Remember what happened in Acts 13? 
You see, John Mark had gone with Paul and Barnabas on their first journey to Pamphylia, but when it was time to leave Pamphylia and go to Antioch, John Mark tapped out. John Mark hit the eject button. And Paul, we don't don't know exactly, Luke doesn't tell us what happened or what the circumstances were, but clearly Paul's still a little bit salty about it, right? In his mind, in his mind, John Mark's a deserter. He bailed on us. There's no way we would take him with us. We've got to remember who Paul is, right? Paul is the, is the brilliant, restless master of the law of God. He's the, he's the fiery church planter, evangelist, missionary strategist. And he has this unrelenting, burning desire to go and to preach Christ where the ground isn't fertile, where people aren't receptive and responsive. He wants to see churches planted, conversions take place, disciples built. So in his mind, taking Barnabas with, take, or taking John Mark with us, Barnabas, are you crazy? We can't count on him. The stakes are too high. No way. In the other side of this conflict, you have Barnabas, right? Barnabas was, was the name that the early uh, disciples gave him. It just means son of encouragement. Barnabas is just this sweet, warm, kind, loving, encouraging guy, right? He's the guy you just totally want to bump into in Starbucks when you're having a bad day, right? He's going to pray for you. He's going to talk with you. He's going to encourage you going to point out all these evidences of God's grace and activity in your life. Barnabas is awesome. We love Barnabas, right? And so from his perspective, he's saying, Paul, what do you mean no to John Mark? You've got to restore this guy. What about, what about forgiveness and, and restoration and reconciliation and, and bearing with people and, and forgiving them? You know, these differences in, in Paul and Barnabas' personalities, they made for this beautiful complementary relationship. It made them so effective in ministry. God did so much through these men, and it's such a bummer to see them. They're just at loggerheads over this issue. And it's not over doctrine. It's over a, over a strategic decision. And who's right in this, right? Who's, who's got the right perspective? Luke just sort of clinically narrates the events and doesn't, doesn't clue us in to who's right. And I don't think we can really know who's right. But in the end, they have a sharp disagreement, and they separate. You know, we have an English word, paroxysm. It means a sudden attack or a violent expression of emotion. And that word comes from the Greek word here, paroxysmos, which the English Standard Version translates as sharp disagreement. The point is, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas split, and it's not warm. It's not, it's not congenial. It's violent. It's ugly. And it's a bummer. It's a bummer. These guys have such a rich history of ministering and suffering together, but it wasn't enough to overcome this disagreement. They have have this deep learning and this spiritual maturity, but that wasn't enough either. They have this shared passion and vision for church planting and mission, but that wasn't enough either. Paul and Barnabas are unable to work through their differences, and they split. Just imagine how they must have felt about this, the questions they must have been asking. God, what's happening here? Is the mission over? But here's what I want us to see in this. The split comes as a result of human weakness, but, but who was ultimate in this separation? God was. Man is, is moving, man is making plans, man is, is, is taking responsibility for his own actions, but at the same time, God is sovereign. So even as human frailty leads to this separation, what's really happening here is God is saying no to relationship because... In his sovereign wisdom and in his good design, he had a gracious and better purpose that he was going to unfold in and through their separation. 
That's a tension that we live in, right? Man is responsible, but God is sovereign. God is ultimate. And by the way, the Bible has no problem uh, inviting us to live in this tension, right? The greatest example of this is, is, is Judas and the death of Jesus Christ, right? The Bible plainly speaks of the wickedness of Judas in betraying Jesus, leading to his arrest and his murder. Judas is responsible for what he did. But at the same time, the Bible says Jesus was delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Man is responsible, but God is ultimate. How's God working in this separation? Well, well, we see a little bit of how he's working in the fruit of what happens after these men separate. What's going to happen is, instead of one apostolic team being, being launched out, two are going to go out. As a result of their separation, also Paul is, is moving away from his original plan and he's going to go on a different journey that's going to turn into his second missionary journey, the greatest of his missionary journeys. And he's going to go on this journey, he's going to plant churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and in Corinth, and then years later, he's going to write letters to these churches that he's established, teaching them, encouraging and exhorting them. Those letters will become a significant portion of our New Testament. Along the way, because of this separation, Paul's going to pick up Luke as a part of his traveling party who's going to accompany him the rest of his, the rest of his ministry. He's going to one day write the book of Luke and the book of Acts for our instruction and for our encouragement in the faith. Do you see it? Do you see it? Sometimes God ordains conflict to get people where they need to go in order to accomplish his sovereign and better and gracious purposes. And so the question is, has God... God said no to a relationship in your life. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't get, don't get cynical. God is, God is sovereign over your story. And he hasn't yet shown you the end of that story that he's writing. You know, we're going to see a little later that this isn't the end of the story for Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. And what we're going to see as we move ahead is that even as God is saying no to relationship, he is moving the mission forward. So to, for us to see how, let's continue to look at this text and see what happens next. Chapter 16. We've seen when God says no to relationships. Now when God says no to freedoms. So Paul and Barnabas separate. Barnabas and John Mark sail off for Cyprus. Paul takes Silas with him and they go through Syria and Cilicia and eventually they land in the region of Lystra and Derby. And it's here that God unites Paul to the young man who would become his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, on Paul's first missionary journey, when they came into this region with Barnabas, Timothy, along with his mother and his grandmother, heard Paul's preaching. And they were converted to Christ under his ministry. And, and the grace of Christ had just been upon this young man. He'd just been on Timothy's life. Verse 2 of chapter 16, it says, he, uh, he was well spoken of by the brothers there. He was looked at as a, though a young man, a man of great maturity and and wisdom and potential. And so Paul recruits him to join their apostolic band. Timothy joins Paul and Silas, and then Paul has Timothy circumcised. Well, that's our second bummer, right? Can you, ma- can you imagine how that recruitment conversation probably went down? It's like, all right, here's where we're going to go. Here's what we're going to do. It's awesome. You're going to be my right-hand guy. It's going to be great. Oh, and by the way, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old Timothy, you're going to have to be circumcised before we go. I mean, that's rough guys. And at this point, as we're reading the narrative, we're ready to throw the flag, right? One, because we feel really bad for Timothy, right? 
But two, because what about, what about what we saw last week, right? What about the first part of Acts chapter 15? What's going on here, Paul? I thought we had the big church business meeting where we settled this issue over circumcision, right? I thought we decided all the leaders got together and decided it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Full stop. What in the world's going on here? Paul, are you, going, are you getting soft? Are you, are you confused? Are you capitulating? No, no. No, no. What's happening here is God is saying no to freedoms. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What we need to understand is that this apostolic group is going to go out and they're going to minister in cities that are full of unbelieving Jews. And so Paul had Timothy circumcised in order that they might gain an audience with these unbelieving Jews. Because they would have known that Timothy's uh, mother was a Jew, but his daddy was a Greek, and so they would have known that he wasn't circumcised, and that would have made it really difficult for them to actually hear his message. That would have been a major stumbling block in the way of the gospel being proclaimed to these unconverted Jews. This is interesting, and it's really important. In, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has another of his, of his assistants, his young pastors, with him. That's Titus, and he takes him along with him, but he doesn't have Titus circumcised. Titus is a, is a Gentile, he's a Greek, and Paul wants to make sure that in that context, there's no confusion about whether or not circumcision is, is, is necessary for salvation. So you see the difference there? In Titus's case, the gospel, the content of the gospel was at stake. But in Timothy's case, the hearing of the gospel was at stake. And so as we see that circumcision is significant in regard to culture, even if it is wholly insignificant in regard to salvation. That's why Timothy was circumcised and Titus wasn't. And you know, I've <laughs> always wondered how this affected Timothy and Titus's friendship, right? <laughs> you, think, you think Timothy resented Titus a little bit, maybe just a little? Imagine them getting together like a big pastor's conference or sitting at the dinner table and Timothy's looking over at Titus, kind of giving him the side eye. <laughs> You're messed up, man. <laughs> Paul. Anyways, I'm sure that wasn't what it was like. And by the way, that was my last circumcision joke of the morning, so you can just breathe. Here's the point. In Christ, Timothy was free to not be circumcised. It wasn't necessary for him to be accepted by God, but, but, he set aside that freedom for the sake of what? neighbor love. He wanted his neighbors, he wanted people to hear the good news of Jesus. The principle here is this, God sometimes calls us to say no to some of our freedoms for the benefit of others, for the sake of love. Martin Luther's really good on this issue. Here's what he says in the freedom of the Christian on this issue. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. These two theses seem to contradict one another, but both are Paul's own statements, who says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. And in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Love by its very nature is ready to serve and be subject to him who is loved. You see it? We lay down our liberties, our rights, our freedoms for love of neighbor. <coughs> Excuse me. I heard a pastor tell a story recently of a man who was really desiring to walk in this sort of love for neighbor, but he was having a hard time finding contexts to do it because he just moved to a real rural area. 
And he only had one neighbor, and that neighbor lived sort of far away, and he didn't know him. And <clears throat> One night it came to be Halloween, and his family didn't celebrate Halloween because they had convictions about it. And as he was winding up the evening, he looked out the window, and he saw that his neighbor's front porch light is on, was on, and it had never been on before. And suddenly it dawned on him. His light's on because he thinks we're coming over. He thinks my kids are going to come over and trick-or-treat at his house. And so thinking of this principle, he says to his kids, to his son, you know, go, go get your baseball uniform. You're a baseball player. You know, to his daughter, go raid, go raid the, the dress-up bin. You're a princess. You know, we're going over to the neighbor's house. It's Halloween. So we're headed over. And he herds the kids over next door. They knock on the door, and the neighbor opens up the door with a big smile on his face and says, you know, I turned the light on for you guys. So glad you came. And I've got this giant bowl of candy. And his kids' eyes get really wide. There is a God. And he's intervened. And so as the kids are in the living room, choking down as many Snickers bars as they possibly can before their dad notices, dad goes into the kitchen with his neighbor, and the neighbor opens up a beer for him, and they sit down at the kitchen table, and he says, You know, I'm so glad y'all are here. Nobody's ever in this house anymore. We've got nobody. My wife and my kids left because I had an affair. And the woman I had the affair with, she left her family too, but in the end, the guilt over what we did was just too great, and she killed herself. I've got nobody. I can't believe you guys came over. This man almost missed a chance at neighbor love. Because of the way he was choosing to exercise or not exercise his freedom in Christ to take his kids trick-or-treating. And I don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we should violate our conscience. I'm not saying that we should sin in our desire to do this. But what I am saying is that we should hold our liberties, the things that we're free in Christ to do or not do, hold them loosely. Be ready to lay them down for the sake of others hearing the good news of the gospel, to love them. And so I don't know what that, I don't know what that issue of freedom is for you. Maybe it's the way that you school your children. Maybe it's your temperate use of alcohol. Maybe it's something else. The point is, God sometimes says no to freedoms because neighbor love is better than our exercise of our liberties. Got it? Third, God says no to plans. <clears throat> Pastors love Paul, right? Great theology, great example. He is such a strategist. Dude's got plans for days, right? His plan here, they're going to go strengthen the churches that they planted in the first journey, and that's going to lead them right out of the Middle East and right on into Asia, and that's going to be the next place he's going to go. He planned to set up shop in Bithynia. What we find is that God had other ideas. The Spirit of Jesus, it says, is just another way of saying the Holy Spirit, did not allow that plan. And we don't know what that means. We don't know exactly how that happened. That could have been their circumstances. That could have been uh, the weather. Traveling was difficult in those days. That could have been impressions from the Lord. We don't know exactly what that was. It's possible it was illness. You know, in verse 10, the, the pronoun shifts from they to we. That's when Luke joins Paul's team. Maybe illness brought Luke to them and prevented them from going into Asia. We don't know. But what we do know is this, God had better plans for Paul. And God said no to Paul's plans because his plans were better. He, d- he redirected 
Paul from Asia to Troas. And then this man appears to Paul in the night. God's leading Paul to Macedonia and away from the plans he had for Asia. And in a sense, these verses, verses 6 through 10, in a way they're sort of like a primer on decision-making in the Christian life, aren't they? I think this is helpful. You know, we want to have we want to have plans. We want to have a vision for our life, don't we? We want to be able to say, like, this is, this is where I'm going to be. This is, this is where we're going to live. This is where I'm going to work. This, these are the people I want to invest in. This is who I want to give my life away to for the sake of the gospel, to really, to really give myself for the mission of God. But at the same time, we want to hold those plans loosely because sometimes God says no, doesn't he? And we want to be sensitive to his leading Sometimes he leads us through open and closed doors. You know, I really want to go this way, but God doesn't seem to be giving an opportunity. Or maybe I was thinking about going this way, but God really seems to be opening up an opportunity over here that I wasn't expecting. Sometimes he does that through community. You know, I'm thinking that this is what I want, and this is the way I want to go, but the people who know me and and, and love me and I know have my best interests at heart are saying, I don't think that's what God has for you. You can do that by impressions and desires as well. And this happens all the time. It happens in small ways and in big ways, doesn't it? So think about how, how God says no to our plans often in small ways. So before I've got four kids, six and under, I feel like God says no to our plans almost every day, right? You should see the lists Katie and I make at the beginning of the day. All the stuff we're going to get done. And God's like, <laughs> No. This happens in big ways too, right? One of the questions, uh, many, some of you know, we, we adopted two kids from Uganda a couple summers ago, and, and uh, a question that we get a fair bit, why did you adopt from Uganda? Why not here? Why not, why not domestically? Why not in another country? And the short answer to that is that we felt very impressed that the Lord wanted us to adopt, and, and as we were reading the hand of his providence, how he was leading, how he was opening doors, we felt like he was leading us to this orphanage in Uganda. And so we sought to walk by faith and in obedience to that. Francis Schaeffer and his wife, Edith, started a ministry in 1955 in Switzerland called Labrie. And over the last 60 years or so, Labrie has, has trained countless college students and young adults in, in matters of theology and, and philosophy and how to, to apply Christian thought in work and in life and in the public square. But Labrie was never their plan. That was never their dream. When they moved to Switzerland in 1955, they just wanted to minister to children. But what happened is as they were ministering to, their, ministering to these children, and as their kids were growing up, they started bringing home friends to sit at the Schaefer's dinner table and to talk to their dad about Christianity. And God just started blessing it and blessing it and blessing it. And more kids came and more kids came and more kids came until eventually they had this thing where kids were getting trained and released for ministry in all walks of life. It was out of those conversations that Labrie was, was formed. The Schaefers had plans, but God had better plans. One of my favorite songs is by, uh, is by Andrew Peterson. It's called I Am a Family Man. Anybody heard this? It, go to a quiet place, grab some tissues, give it a listen. I was actually sitting in the cafe at Whole Foods on Friday listening to this song like an idiot because I was crying. Anyway, so this song, is it's all about it's all about just being a family man and the blessing that comes from that. And some of the lyrics of the, of the song, he says, I'm a family man, traded in my Mustang for a minivan. This is not what I was headed for when I began. This was not my plan. 
I am a family man. And at the end of the song, he, he repeats those same lines. He says, this is not my plan, but it's so much better than. We have a direction we think our life's going to go. We have plans, but so often God has better plans. Paul thought he knew what was best, but God knew what was best. God said no to Paul's plan so that he could redirect Paul to Macedonia and into Philippi because he had something better planned for Paul. And let's look at what happens here. This is amazing, guys. They get to Philippi. Verse 14, they meet Lydia, this seller of purple goods. She's this wealthy and influential woman in this leading metropolitan European city. And the Lord opens Lydia's heart to the message of the gospel. She hears it and she's miraculously converted. And what's going to happen next is amazing. We'll look at the beginnings of this next week, but more and more conversions are going to happen. And a church is going to be formed in Philippi. As a matter of fact, that church is going to meet in Lydia's home. And out of this one conversion, a gospel beachhead is going to be established in Europe, in Philippi. And out of that, something amazing is going to take place, the evangelization of all of Europe. In the years to come, the rest of the modern world will get evangelized from Europe. Do you see it? Do you see what God was doing? He's saying no to all those other things because he's saying yes to something better. And here's the question that we need to ask this morning. It's easy to believe that God did that here because we see it in the Bible, right? But do we believe that God does that now? Do we, do we believe that he does it in our situation, in our lives? I want you to understand something about your heart, about our hearts. There's something inside of us that's broken. You and I are pre-programmed to believe that, that when God says no, it's a punitive thing. It's negative. It's his, it's his punishment. It's his judgment against us. And the reason that we feel that way is because many, if not most people, carry around in their heads this disastrously wrong-headed perception of God. We think of God as like, the big cosmic vending machine in the sky, right? We put in our coins, our coins of prayer, our obedience, our good works, our generosity, our religious devotion. And in return, God dispenses to us goodies and yeses to everything that we want. It keeps us from suffering and hardship. We believe this because sin inside of us, it just makes us allergic to grace. And we need the gospel, the good news, and the Spirit's illumination to awaken us to the reality of who God really is and what He's really like. And when that happens, what we see is that God's not a vending machine at all. He's a loving Father who knows what we need better than we do. And when He says no to your plans, guys, we can believe this if we know that He's our Father. He's being good to us. Because he cannot and he will not be anything but good to us. And I don't know exactly how this works. I don't know the particulars of this for your situation, but I know that it's true. Because this is who God has revealed himself to be. This is who you are, we sang a minute ago. Full of grace, full of love, reigning over our situation. You might be thinking, well, thanks a lot, Pastor. I appreciate it but my plans were good and righteous and God-honoring, and I just cannot for the life of me 
figure out why God would say no to them. Here's what I would say to you if that's where you are. God is God and God is good and you can trust him. Here's something that I've learned. I've walked with Jesus for a long time. I've been a pastor for eight or nine years now. And here's something that God keeps taking me further and further into the longer I walk with him. God is far wiser than we are. And he is far more ruthlessly committed to our joy than we are. And so often, and please hear this, his way of delivering us to that joy is to say no to what we want in order that we might see that what we want and need most is more of him. And he is so zealous to give us more of him. He is so zealous, in fact, that he often ordains to give more of himself to us through the very means that we're talking about, through saying no to what we ask for. So if you're in that place, let me just encourage you, wait on the Lord. Trust him. Trust him. After the first service, a, a dear sister in the church came up to me and said, you know, you saying that about waiting for the Lord, about his plans being better, reminded me of, of after my first marriage fell apart. I was so lonely and isolated, and I went on eHarmony and filled out the profile and said I would go anywhere in the United States that they wanted to match me. And I hit send, and it returned to me no matches. There wasn't a match found for me in the entire U.S. She said, I was devastated and broken. But you know how good the Lord was in that? She's now married to a wonderful, godly man. She's a leader in our church. And God said no to her desire in that moment because, because he had something better for her. And she looked at me and said, Josh, I'm so glad God said no. I'm so glad. You know, as we wait in faith, as we wait patiently, God will often show us his plan. He'll show it to us at least in part. We see this in, in, in a couple ways. You know, did Paul ever squash his beef with Barnabas? Did he ever reconcile with John Mark? This isn't mentioned explicitly in Acts, but from the rest of the New Testament, it sure seems like they did. Colossians 4, verse 10, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. John Mark especially was going to go on to play a significant role in the early church and to actually be a member of Paul's crew. At the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 11, Paul writes to Timothy about uh, the loneliness of the end of his ministry. He says, Luke alone is with me. Aren't we glad that God joined Luke up with Paul? Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. How beautiful is that? From no way we can take him with us to useful to me for ministry. You know, John Mark would also go on to write a little book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit called The Gospel of Mark. Same guy. God said no to his relationship with Paul because he had something better for John Mark. What about Paul's dreams for Asia? Did Paul ever make it to Asia? Yes. Yes, he did. His third missionary journey takes him to Ephesus in the Asia of that day. And Acts 19 verses 9 and 10 say that Paul was reasoning daily 
in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You know, sometimes as we wait on the Lord, as we trust him, we find that God's no was actually a not now. I love this quote. Love, love, love this quote from Scotty Smith. He says, God has a much richer vocabulary than simply yes and no. He's got yes, no, maybe not yet, ain't telling you, hang in there. And here, this is it, guys. This is the point. The more I know God is my father, the more I trust he is always answering prayer. And that sometimes it's only in hindsight that I can say, God, thank you for not saying yes back there. You think Paul would agree with that? You think Barnabas would? You think John Mark would? I believe they would. Many of us will be able to see the goodness of God in his saying no to us in this life. We also acknowledge the truth that many of us won't. Many of us won't get to see what God was doing in saying no to us in this life. But we can know this. All of us who are in Christ will be able to see it on the last day. We will be able to see it. Because no matter where God has said no to you, and no matter how how deeply you feel the disappointment of God's no, He has said yes to you in Jesus Christ. And if your heart can agree with that, And if in the midst of your disappointment and your hurt and your despair over those places where God has said no, you can take comfort in that. If you can agree with that and rest in that, guess what? You're starting to understand the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. And you're starting to get what this Christian life thing is all about. Because the gospel is not Jesus loves you and now you get a pain-free life. The gospel is Jesus loves you and now you get him. And whatever else we get or don't get in this life, he is enough for us. Amen? You see, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But check this out. In order for God to say yes to his promises to us, he had to say no to someone he loved. And that was his son, Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the hours before he would go to the cross, Jesus pleaded with his Father for some way of salvation other than the cross. Because Jesus knew the agony of the physical torture, the spiritual anguish, the separation from God that was coming for him, the full, unfiltered, unyielding wrath of God was bearing down on him like a freight train. And through his bloody sweat in the isolation of the Garden of Gethsemane, he begged his father, whom he knew loved him, to take the cup. Let the cup pass from me. Let there be some other way, Father. And God said no. God said no. Why? Because in his wisdom, God had chosen before the foundation of the world that he was going to set his love on you. And he knew the only way for you to be right with God, the only way he could say yes to you for mercy and for grace and salvation and adoption and eternal life was to say no to his son whom he loved. He knew that his son had to be crushed 
so that you could have hope in this life and in the life to come. That's what this table is all about. So as we come to it, I want to ask you the question that cries out for an answer in this text. Can God love us? Can God be good and say no to us? Yes. He can. He does. And He will. But He is God. He is good. And He wants to invite you into that goodness again at this table. This table is open for everyone who is turned from their sins and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Not Jesus plus our obedience. Not Jesus plus our good deeds. Jesus alone. And he wants earnestly to strengthen and encourage you as he meets you in this feast. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask him to do that work in us as the band comes back and as our servers get ready to come and and serve us. I want to ask if you'll join me and praying that God would write this truth on our hearts. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are gracious. You are kind. You are merciful. And even in those times when it's hard for us,